Welcome to Kick-Ass Boomers, giving you the motivation and inspiration you need to make the most of your later years. Whether you're still in the planning stages or you're several years in, we'll share stories from boomers who refuse to act their age and continue to live a life inspired. Let them show you how being old can be new if you know what to do with your host, Terry Lorbeer. Hello and welcome to Kick-Ass Boomers. My guest today is Carol Cook from Melbourne, Australia. You may not have heard of Carol, but she is an Australian three-time gold medal Paralympian and a nine-time world champion in cycling. She is a speaker, author, and founder of the MS 24-Hour Mega Swim to help raise funds for multiple sclerosis, and she has raised over $11 million. Welcome, Carol. How are you today? Thanks so much, Terry. I'm really good. Really good. good, thanks. Great. I'm glad to hear that. So, wow. I don't even really know where to begin. You have so many accomplishments. So I'm going to let you just tell your story of the journey to becoming a world-class athlete and author. Oh, well, thanks so much. Um, and listening to me, most of your listeners will think, but she doesn't sound Australian. And uh, I'm actually born in Canada. So I've been in Australia 26 years. And uh, all, well, we're getting close to half my lifetime. Mm. <laughs> a few, few more years to go yet. But yeah, I married an Australian. So this has been home for the last 26 years. So I still think of myself as Canadian at heart. And my mom always says I'm still Canadian. So home is where the heart is, you know. But yeah, my, um, my journey, well, in sport started, I guess, at the age of seven when I was watching the Mexico Olympics. And I saw these, these women doing like amazing, you know, gymnastic tricks. And I always wanted to be a gymnast. And, you know, if you look at me now, you'd realize like, no, that's not the body of a gymnast. But <laughs> that was at nine, my best friend and I, we decided we were going to try out for an elite gymnastics club. And when we got there, they took our height and weight and the lady was really mean. And she just looked at me and said, oh, you're too fat for gymnastics. Oh, no. Wouldn't, it wouldn't even let me go in to try. And I look at pictures now and I think, oh, my God, how could you say that to a nine-year-old who definitely is not fat? But right. obviously, I just wasn't the right body type that they wanted. And I was crushed, absolutely crushed. Like those dreams were now gone. And, you know, my mom at the time I was in tears and she just said, look, if you want to do gymnastics, you keep doing it. But if you want to go to the Olympics, then maybe you should try another sport. And I'd never thought about that. So it was like teaching me at that young age to think outside the box, think outside what you've been focusing on and maybe try something new. And it was a lesson that I took right through my whole life, I guess, because I have tried. I always say to people when I'm talking to them, you know, I've had one dream since that young age, and that was 42 years in the making across two countries and three sports. Um, and I finally got there. So I always say to people, never give up on your dream. But I started swimming as a 10-year-old, and my goal was always the 1980 Olympics. And, you know, I was swimming at a national level at the age of 15, and doing really well. And then, of course, 
the U.S. decided to boycott the Moscow Olympics, and so oh. Canada decided to follow along oh, with most, yeah. <laughs> most of the Western world. And so I thought, well, there's that gone as well. You know, at 18, back then, at the age of 18, if you hadn't made it in swimming, you were washed up. Like, that was it. You know, most of the world champions were 18 and under. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, you look at some of the swimmers now, I think you had an American in Beijing in 2008, Dara Torres, who won three silver medals and she was 40. So we realized that women get stronger with age. But that was, I figured that was it. You know, my dreams were crushed. And so what did I do? I joined the Toronto Police Force. That's, you know, what else would you do? (laughs) That's quite a switch. (laughs) It was a big switch. But again, there's that thinking outside the box. Mm -hmm. Um, What do I do now? And I still kept swimming because I loved it. And I actually represented Toronto Police Force at the very first World Police and Fire Games, which were in San Jose, California, and did really well. That was my big, I've represented my country at the highest pinnacle of sport for me at that point. It was a World Games, even though it was just Police and Fire. But it was through those games that I actually met a whole bunch of Australians, those very first games in 1985. And there was one couple that handed me a business card and said, if you ever want to come to Australia, you've got somewhere to stay. And I'm like, "Woo, perfect. Wow. Six months later, I was on the phone to them going, I don't even remember what you look like, but I've got your business card. And you said I could visit. So I've booked a flight. And they're like, oh, okay. And um, <laughs> yeah, John and Margot Howe. And they they ended up becoming like second parents to me. And from 1986 till 92, I, I guess I, I came down here about nine times. And just on a few weeks holidays. And in 92, I decided I wanted to do it correctly. I wanted to see the whole country because I'd fallen in love with it. So I took a year off policing and, and came down here. And at the end of that year, met my husband, of course. Of course. And, <laughs> yes. At the end of the year. Thank goodness, because I probably wouldn't have done everything I did. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I had to come home. I had to come back to Canada because I had a job to get back to. And I tried filling out forms. I I found a job in Australia in security and they were going to sponsor me and everything. But Australia has very, very strict immigration policies and I didn't fit into their point system. I didn't have enough points. So we decided that I would just come down eventually on a tourist visa and yeah, Russ had proposed. So, but you know, when I, when I did get down here and then we got married and I got in on the spousal, spousal way, but Right. It was just such an amazing, Melbourne is just such an amazing place for sport. And we call it the sporting capital of the world because there is so much that you can do. And for me, coming from Toronto, and, and you'll understand the winters. Yes. From <laughs> Melbourne, like there's no snow in Melbourne. And all the pools, most of the pools are outdoors. And so you swim outdoors in the winter. And I was like, wow, this is amazing, (laughs) you know, fresh air. It might be cold, but the pool's heated. And so I kept swimming. So I joined a master's club, local master's club. And yeah, I was competing just around the country. I actually went to the world master's games competing. And so I thought, well, yeah, this is kind of what I wanted to do. And then I was diagnosed with MS 
in 98. And how and, old were you um, then when you were, your, when you were diagnosed? I was 36. So I had a few months to go before my 37th birthday. Wow. Actually, it was April 23rd, 1998. Funny mm. enough, I remember even the time that I went. It was 2.15 p.m. my, my appointment. Oh, my goodness. And the, uh, the doctor that diagnosed me was a bit of an ass. I hope I can say that on your on your podcast, but that's fine. <laughs> he should have been retired years ago wow. because when I got there, all my symptoms had gone. So I figured I was wasting his time, and he acted like I was wasting his time. He was in a hurry. He just pointed to a big armchair and said, "Sit down, you know, like you." And he pulled out a big film and he held it to the ceiling light, and he says, "Oh, too many lesions on your brain for someone your age." basically your life as you know it is over. So I'd suggest you go home and put your affairs in order before you become incapacitated. Oh my gosh, that's a terrible thing to say. He said, you've got MS and that's multiple sclerosis. And I I knew what MS was, not exactly what it was, but I had heard of it. And it was like being hit by a bus. And then he turns to me and he goes, and all this silly sports stuff you do, well, you'll never be able to do that again. And I was like, what? And I said one word that day. I looked at him and I said, what? He goes, oh, you heard me. You've got MS. And he said, and you're going to have to quit work and go on a whole bunch of drugs. And to be honest, I don't have time for you as a patient. So you just have to go back to your GP. I've got enough people with MS to deal with. Oh, my goodness. He really said that? Yeah. Oh, my God. And with that, he put the film back in the envelope and walked to the door. I said one word that day. And that was what? And he was just dismissing me. You know, he opened the door and he said, hurry up. I've got people waiting. Oh my and God. as I walked towards him, he slammed the envelope with the film in. And he says, you can give that to your GP and see my secretary on the way out. <laughs> it was just like, what? I think the one thing that stuck in my mind was that I would be incapacitated. And I, we can all think about what that word means to us. Mm-hmm. If we information. And to me, it was sitting in a wheelchair, wearing nappies, diapers, drooling, not being able to feed myself, not being able to communicate, like incapacitated completely. Right. Especially when he said I couldn't do sport anymore. And like, I'd done sport my whole life. So how the hell was that going to work? So yeah, it was, I drove home in a blur. And I think if I hadn't been brought up to question things, you know, that could have very well been the last day of my life. Who knows what, if I was somebody else, what I could have done. Right. But I have a great husband who I told him I'd give him a divorce. He's 10 years older than me. So I said, I'll give you a divorce. I'll go back to Canada. We just bought a house. I was building my career, you know, and I said, you can have the house and just, I'll just go. And he just looked at me and told me I was an effing idiot, like a good bush boy Australian does. Uh, mincing no words about it. And he said, look, we don't know anything about this. And he said, you don't have it. We have it. We'll deal with it. So I'm pretty lucky that, you know, we've just had our 26th wedding anniversary. So pretty lucky that I've got him in my corner because Very a, lot lucky. People, Very yeah, lucky. a lot of, a lot of people wouldn't have. Right. But I decided that It took me a while. It probably took me six months to come to terms with it. But I decided that nobody was going to tell me what I could and couldn't do. And I think I was always pig-headed and stubborn growing up. I mean, my mom will tell you that. 
Mm -hmm. but I decided that I was going to keep swimming. Like I figured the healthier I could be, the better. And I guess it was in 1995. Geez, I'm losing time here. (laughs) 1995, the World Masters Games were being held in Canada. And so I thought, well, good way to get home for a visit. But they also had para categories in swimming and athletics for the first time ever. So I thought, I wonder if I can get classified as a para swimmer. And so I was able to. I had enough disability uh, that showed up that I was able to. So I went over as a para athlete. Mm -hmm. This was a first for me. And I did really well. Came home with, I think, six gold medals and a silver. Wow. But Paralympics Australia heard about me. Now, master swimming starts at the age of 25. So at that point, they had no idea how how old I was. So they, I guess they figured I was about 25. I was 45. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and oh, I remember getting I remember getting an email asking me to come to a Paralympic talent search day and I'm thinking hmm I think those days are for kids and like you know into maybe early 20s for future Paralympians right but I thought so I emailed the, the guy back and I said do you have any idea how old I am and he replied and that's all I said I said I'm happy to come but <laughs> And he said, nope, no idea. Just come along. Doesn't matter. So I got there. (laughs) I was 24 years older than the oldest person there at the talent search day. And I think when I walked in, all the parents that were there were wondering where my child was. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, nope, it's me. I'm here here for the testing. So I went about all the testing with all the kids. And it was about two weeks later, I received a letter asking me to take up the sport of rowing because it was a a brand new, sorry, that was 2005. Jeez, I am really losing time. (laughs) That was in 2005, because in 2008, at the Beijing Paralympics, rowing was going to be a brand new sport added to the program. So I thought, oh, wow, like, okay. So I took up rowing, and it's a good thing I was a good swimmer, because I did a lot of swimming, falling out of the boat. But I went to nationals the following year. So it was 2007 and I ended up winning one of the events, which kind of blew me away. So a couple months later, I got in touch with Rowing Australia and I said, I see that there's a classification day and that was in Canberra. So that's about an eight hour drive from Melbourne. And I said, should I be going to get classified? Because I really want to go to Beijing. And I got the worst email back from this admin staff member who said, oh, I saw you row at nationals. You'll never be good enough or strong enough to uh, make a national team. And that was like waving a red flag to a bull, to be honest. And I just went, how dare you decide what you think I can and can't do? So I took about three days to compose an email back to him. But not only did I send it to him, in a very polite way, telling him where he could stick his email and his thoughts. But I sent it to his boss. And I also found out the email of Rowing Australia CEO and the Rowing Victoria, which is our state CEO, and my coach. And I sent it off with his email attached. And I said to him, I will be going to Canberra to get classified, whether you like it or not. Anyway, about a week later, I got an invite back for an all-expenses-paid trip flight accommodation to Canberra yeah, to get classified and take part in a rowing camp that they decided to put together. 
Wow. And the following year, I made the national team. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was I was one of four. In para rowing, you have, in my classification, it's a coxed uh, mixed four boat. So you have two men and two women mm-hmm. that all have different, they can all have different disabilities, but they can use everything, their legs, their arms, and their trunk. And, and then you have a coxswain who isn't disabled, who steers the boat. Mm-hmm. And so I made the team and I turned to this guy's boss who was standing beside me and I said, so I hope that email he sent is like plastered all over his walls. So he remembers not to ever do that again. And he goes, oh, don't worry. He knows. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, we went to a World Cup to qualify the boat and we missed by 0.8 of a second. So here, all of a sudden, I thought, yay, you know, this dream that I've had since I was seven is going to come true. It might not be for Canada. It might be for Australia. It might not be for swimming. It'll be for rowing. Right. It might not be the Olympics. It'll be the Paralympics. But hey, it's still the same thing. Right. And, uh, and less than the snap of your fingers, that was gone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I remember we, we got back to the dock. It was a blanket finish. We had to wait for a photo finish and we'd oh. missed by 0.8. And I couldn't get out of the boat because my legs were just completely gone. My MS, when I get fatigued, things just mm-hmm. stop. And yep. they lifted me out and they said, oh, we'll go grab a wheelchair. I said, no, just leave me here. And I, I'm not ashamed to say I laid on that dock and I cried like a baby. Oh. And I just thought, I can't, I'm 47, I can't keep doing this. And I'd been writing a blog at the time about our journey. And we all thought this was just a formality. We'll get through this and we're going to Beijing. Yeah. So I was apologizing in my blog to all my followers for the journey ending and that, you know, I'm sorry, we, you know, I, we can't take it any further. And, and my sister gave me a swift kick up the butt through cyberspace and she emailed me and she said, so why are you giving up? And she said, if you love rowing, just keep rowing. And she said that old that old saying, it's not the destination that's important. It's the journey to get there. You know, it's the journey that matters in life. Our destinations change all the time, mm-hmm. but it's the journey that people want to hear about. And she said, if you like rowing, just take it a day at a time, a week at a time, a month at a time, a year at a time, and just enjoy what you're doing. I thought, God, younger sisters can be smarter sometimes. Yes. <laughs> So I kept rowing, made the national team the following year. We came sixth at the world championships. So we were all very excited that we had now three years to London that we could train together. But rowing Australia had different ideas. They decided they weren't interested in our crew. And that was it. It was dumped. So my mom's lesson came back into play. And it was like, think outside the box. And one of the girls that the other girl that had been in the boat with me, She rang me and said, oh, Carol, they've got a trike category at the Paralympics in cycling. Now, because of my MS, I've lost my ability to balance. Mm -hmm. And so I ride, it's a normal bike, but where the back wheel would normally go is to a fork with an axle across the back. So it's got two wheels at the back, same size as, you know, the front wheel. So it's a normal bike. As I say to kids, it's, it's like a little kid's trike on steroids. It's just bigger. And I said, what? I I was surprised. I said, Alex, what are you talking about? She goes, there's a trike category in cycling. And she had switched to cycling. And so she said to me, she said, oh, you should come up 
this was probably January of 2011. And she said, oh, you should, you should come up to uh, nationals. And I said, when are they? And she said, in April. Now, I just had this 22-kilo steel frame trike to ride back and forth to rowing training. And it certainly, it was just, you know, made by a local guy. There was nothing fancy about heavy as all get out. 22 kilos is like over 44 kilos. Whoa, you know? that's a lot. And, that's a lot. Yeah, and, or over 44 pounds. And oh. so it was like just a hard slog riding back and forth. But it was good training. And I said, I know nothing about cycle racing. She goes, eh, don't worry about it. Just come up and ride. So I said, okay. And I went up to Queensland in April. And I looked at the hill. I drove the course and I looked at the hills we had to climb. And I thought, oh, I said, Alex, this is going to be embarrassing when I have to get off this bloody trike and walk up these hills. She goes, don't worry about it. She says, I'm on two wheels. I think I'm going to have to get off and walk up as well. <laughs> but uh, neither of us had to walk up, I must say. And I did so well in the time trial there that the head coach came up to me and he said, <laughs> he says, oh, my God, where have you come from? And I said, oh, Melbourne. And he says, no, I mean, in the cycling world. And I said, no, I'm a rower. And he goes, no, you are a cyclist. And I said, well, no, this is like my first race. And he goes, really? He says, you do realize you've just smashed the qualifying speed for your category to make the national. Whoa, wow. And I said, what is it? And he goes, oh, my God, you don't even know what the qualifying. I said, I know nothing about cycling. He goes, I have to talk to your coach. And I just kind of keep talking then I said I have a rowing coach I don't have a cycling coach and he just shook his head and he's like oh my god we got to find you a coach and that was actually the start of and so that would have been April 2011 made my first national team for a world cup in at the end of May that year won both the road race and the time trial and then went to my first world championships in September of 2011 and I guess I went there he had he had just worked me up so much and said, you know, you're the fastest female trike rider I've ever seen in the world. And you know, he said, you're going to just be fantastic. So I went just expecting to win, you know, like I just figured, um, well, this is good. Unfortunately, there was a Canadian, a French Canadian girl who was probably told the exact same thing. And she was the fastest in the world. Mind you, yeah. she was also on a 15 kilo spick, you know, flashy trike and I'm still riding my 22 kilo steel frame thing. You were still riding that big clump. Well, yeah, yeah. you've got to have a good bike to win. Oh my God. <laughs> exactly. Oh my exactly. God. Well, I always say, you know what? The equipment is one thing, but you have to have the heart and the, the, the legs to actually win. You know, yes. you can be on something that's $15,000, but if you don't have it, then you're not going to win. But yeah, yep. I was I ended up second in both races. We both beat the the reigning world champion. And I thought, well, you know, plus I was probably trying to think what it would be in pounds. Well, 20 kilos heavier than I am now. So <laughs> there was a lot of added extra weight. I went downhill really fast, but climbing up hills was was hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But after after the racing, the head coach sat me down and he said, Look, if you come back stronger and fitter. It was a nice way of saying, lose some weight, get fitter. He said, I'll build you a brand new trike. Mm. And I went, oh, okay. 
well, that was talk about incentive. Within about three months, I'd lost 15 kilos and I saw him at a track meet velodrome and I walked up to him. He didn't even recognize me. And I said, he goes, oh my God, what have you done? I said, I'm getting stronger and fitter because I'm looking forward to that new trike. (laughs) True to his word, he actually did come up with a, a brand new trike in March of 2012. And so then, then we were looking at London, the Paralympics at London. Mm-hmm. And I was so excited because I thought, oh, maybe I have a shot of making the team. And in Australia, paracycling is, we have an extremely strong team. And at the Paralympics, you're only given so many spots based on the points you've got in the previous 18 months at World Cups and stuff. Mm-hmm. We only had six female spots mm. for the London Paralympics out of 13 categories. And Ugh. unfortunately, in 2012, there weren't, they, the Paralympics decided that there weren't enough women in my category to race on our own. So we had to race against the men. They handicapped it, but it was, you know, being untested against the men, it was going to be tough. And so I ended up getting the very last spot on the team and I was just so excited. Right. And then, yeah. And then a week later I was told I was off the team because somebody had appealed against my spot. One of the other riders and it was talk about like a roller coaster. I'm there, I'm there and then nothing. And then then, I'm there and then nothing. Oh my gosh. I know. And I'm thinking, oh my God, how much more do I have to go through? And I was 50 years old at this point. Wow. And I'm thinking, oh, I know my sister said, just take it a day at a time. And, but this is getting ridiculous. And so there was a hearing for that spot. And I ended up getting it because they said it wasn't it you couldn't pick the spot based on personalities or you know mm-hmm. they'd been very person attacked me personally because i had ms and it's unstable and we don't know what'll happen like it was a, and i had to race the men and i was untested against them but the judicial panel said no 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 the, the appeal can only be against the process and nothing's gone wrong with the process and we can't say who should get that spot only the head coach can say that and so I got the spot back. So I was on the team. I was off the team. Then I was back on the team. And true to, true to form, I, I, I worked so hard. And I can honestly say I had nothing left at the end of the time trial. And thank goodness I was riding a trike because I didn't, you don't fall over. Because mm-hmm. I, I couldn't pedal anymore. And our physio had to wheel me back into our bay. Wow. And I'd actually won. I'd actually won the time trial against the men with the factoring. And Boy, the head coach came up to me. Wow. Yeah. Head coach came up to me and at this at this point I turned 51. So I was 51 when I won my first medal and went to my first games. And uh, he just put his arms around me and gave me a big hug and he just whispered to me, he goes, Thanks for not making a liar out of me for his <laughs> picking me for the team. So that was good. And then and then of course, you know, you think, well, I've I've reached my pinnacle, I've reached my goal what we do now. So it was all about setting more goals. And because I hadn't won the world championships, I thought, well, I have to win a world championship. And in 2013, I did exactly that, won both the the road race and the time trial. Mm -hmm. And I guess at that point, people were saying, are you going to retire? Because I was now 52. And I'm thinking, 
but I don't feel like what's 50, like what's the number got to do with it. Right. And right. Nothing. And I kept thinking if I, if I like riding and I'm enjoying it and I'm doing well, then right. why don't I just keep going? And so I have, and all of a sudden then 2016 was around and it was time for the Paralympics in Rio. And this time we had enough women. So we had our own races, which was fabulous. And I ended up winning both the road race and the time trial, but it wasn't easy. The year before I'd been beaten at the world championships by an American woman who funny enough, she was from New York state, Rochester, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is right across the water, basically from Toronto, Lake Ontario. Wow. She was two years younger than me. So we were the oldest racing, her and I. The rest of them were like under 40 mm. and um, some in the 20s and just her and I. And, and she had MS and so did I. And she had been a police officer in New York State. She'd been oh a state trooper. Oh, my gosh. Trooper. That's really At the freaky. same time that I'd been on the job in Toronto. So oh. our lives were commingled like it was just bizarre. And so she beat me in, um, we were in Switzerland for the world championships in 2015 and she beat me in the road race. And so I had to come back here and, and think, okay, how am I going to do this? You know, learn a few things. And I'm, to be honest, I'm not a fan of road running because there's too many tactics involved and too many other people. I just like the time trial where you're on your own, it's you against the clock and you just go, you know, it's such a pure, pure race. But I thought I've got to learn some things. So I learned to corner better and just try and sprint better and get by her and not. Yeah. So it was it was a real year of of trying to learn how to do things differently. And I completely did the road race in Rio differently. And it threw a lot of people through a lot of my competitors, because usually I was just out and like really hard and trying to drop them all. And this time, no, I just when the gun went, I didn't go. I just didn't move. And they're all like, what, 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 what's Carol? And so they went and I just slotted into the back and I thought, nope, I'm doing something completely different. And it actually worked with about, I guess with about four kilometers to go, I, I took off and ended up dropping all of them. Um, Jill, she, the American, she came with me, but I was able to, you know, just stretch that bungee cord, as I say, and, <laughs> and break it so that, yeah, yeah she, she you. didn't have anything left. So I ended up winning both the time trial and the road race in Rio. And again, I guess people thought, well, that's going to be it. She's now 55. So is she done? And in fact, I think it was the following, yeah, it was the following year we had we had world championships in South Africa and another American was there as well. And as we, and I'd won, I'd won and I was walking by and she said, Carol, when are you going to retire? And <laughs> I think, you know, she was like, we got to get rid of you because, you know, we can't win with you around. <laughs> we want to win. And I just looked at her and I said, Oh, maybe the day that they close that coffin lid and, and put me in the ground is the day I go. Yeah. Okay. I'm done. But yeah, so it's, it was just about setting goals and I had never won the world cup series because Australia is so far away from Europe where most of the world cups are that mm-hmm. we don't get to go very often to them. And the same head coach, he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'd like to go over and just do the world cups. So I spent about three months in Europe and ended up yeah, winning the world cup series in 2018 and 19. So yeah. So then all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's, then, then it's 2019. And I'm thinking, geez, 
it's not long to the next games. And I thought, well, why don't we? And then, of course, COVID hit it out of the year. So people are funny now. All my I call them my team because I don't make plans until the year is over. And mm-hmm. now that we've got Tokyo happening, they're all saying, well, Carol, it's only three years to Paris now. <laughs> like, oh, my God. <laughs> so, you know, I was going to be 59 in Tokyo. Now I'm going to be 60 in Tokyo. So um, I don't really know how much longer I can keep going. But look, it's keeping me healthy. It's keeping me walking. It is. You know, I believe exercise is the best thing for us. And, you know, I know if I don't do things for, you know, if I have four or five days off, which doesn't happen very often. I can feel my MS sliding backwards. The legs start to tighten. And and that's the last thing. I, I was in a wheelchair full time in 2001, 2002. And that's the last thing I want to do. I don't want to end up back there. And no. so I honestly believe that, yeah, the exercise keeping walking. It's also my social outlet. You know, I've made so many friends from learning all these different spores. And funny enough, uh, one of our Olympic archers I was doing a talk with him at a school the other day and he sent me, he has surgery school. <laughs> he said, he said to me afterwards, he goes, well, there's always another sport you could learn and that's archery. And I, so he sent me a free come and try thing too, for two lessons. Right. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, maybe I'll be on to the next sport. You could be. Yes. Who, who knows? Yeah. For now, I think, I think I'll keep cycling and yeah, it's like I said, it's keeping me walking and it's my social outlet, even though it's bloody early in the morning when I go and meet my friends to ride. So I don't know how you stay so focused because I'm not that good with physical things. So I just admire you so much that you push yourself and you get out there and you do it because I don't know if I could. I guess if I was diagnosed with MS, I might be more willing to push myself, but uh, I, but done. I think everybody, you know, everybody's got their own things that they push themselves with. Like you with your podcasts, I no, I couldn't do what you do. So we all, we it makes us all individuals, and that's what makes the world such an amazing place. If we were all the same, we'd be pretty boring, wouldn't we? Well, yeah, we all did the same thing. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess for me, I'm lucky that sport has been in my life my whole life. And even when I met my husband was a local Aussie rules football club here in Melbourne. Mm. And even when I, we got together, he was the uh, manager for the team. And so if I wanted to see him between February and October, I had to do something with the club. And I ended up as the head sports trainer running around the field, looking after injuries. Um, so I've always been the sports orientated and, and yeah. Well, and I think baby boomers, baby boomers, even if you're not physical, which I never have been, my, I did not come from a sports family. We did nothing in that vein. Now, my younger sisters played volleyball and things, but I was not involved at all. So it got harder as I got older to keep exercising. But at my age now, I make sure I go out and walk every day. I do some weightlifting. You've got to keep your body up if you want to live longer. You really do. Oh. And especially for women, you know, with the osteoporosis. And so you're doing the right thing, you know, as long as you're walking and you're doing some weightlifting. And you know, I say that my, my mom will be 85 in May and she outwalks me. She just walks all the time. 
She's got a little gym in her in her building and she's amazing, you know, and she's the youngest of four women and they're all still alive. It's just amazing. We we all got together on on Zoom for um Easter from I, I think we went it was all the women from 90 to 25. Oh you wow. Know, my niece my niece jumped on and and then my sister and myself, my mom and her three sisters. So it was and they're all into technology, you know, oh, which that's is fantastic. Great. Wow, yeah. really? Yeah. But that's how you stay young. That is how yeah. you stay young. Yeah. And they're all still living on their own. They're not in care or and they just kicking goals left, right, and center. You know, <laughs> they're just doing well. But you came from good stock. Yeah. Yes. Hopefully I'll have good genes that I'll maybe that's why I keep riding, you know, why I can keep riding is thanks yeah. to them. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. probably do. And then now, when did you decide to write the book? I'm sure people pushed you to do it because of your accomplishments. I'm sure they said, we need a book. Like, so when did the your first book come out? Well, the first book, I, funny enough, I, I wrote on planes, like as I was traveling to different, different races and whatnot. Nobody, I just felt like I had a lot of information I could give people. And the book first came out in 2015 and it was called Cycle of Life. Mm-hmm. And then after Rio, it felt like there was something missing from the book. So I actually added a chapter after mm-hmm. Rio in 2016 and I changed the name of it to Finding Your Inner Gold. And it's just steps to, you know, I don't think we celebrate our accomplishments enough. It talked about overcoming problems and hurdles in life, but I used stories from my life to to show how to get past certain certain things. So I, I just sell that from my website and when I go do talks, which has been great, but I self-published. And funny enough, I was I was doing a podcast almost this time last year, when we first we first went into lockdown. And I was talking to a man who teaches people how to write books. And so he he talks to authors. And so he asked me to be on his podcast. So I was doing a podcast with him. And afterwards, when we were just having a chat, I happened to mention that I had started writing another book. And basically, it was at first, it's funny how when you start writing something, it can be one thing and then it kind of changes. And it was just my family history in policing in Toronto because there's 85 years. So my my grandfather and my dad, my mom, myself, great uncle, a couple of cousins were all on the Toronto force. Really? Wow. Yeah. My mom and dad met there. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. She was the 14th woman ever hired on the Toronto police force. Boy. So I thought it's a really interesting family. So I started writing about that and he said, but who's he, so I was telling him about it and it was something to do because in lockdown, there wasn't much to do other than, well, I don't know if you can see in the background, I've got a bike there. It's on a trainer. So it was either ride inside or write. So he said to me, he said, but who's going to want to read it? Like what's, what's what he wanted. Yeah, exactly. And he, and he really pushed me and he said, you need lessons, life lessons. What have you learned from your family and policing? And, right. and so it kind of evolved. And I'm happy to say, he kept saying to me, you don't need to self-publish. You've got enough credential behind you that a publisher will pick it up. And I was kind of, oh, 
you know, you kind of go, oh, I don't know. No, and he goes, you yeah, really so, do, yes. <laughs> yeah. He became my mentor, Andrew Jobling, and he's written like seven or eight books. Mm. And he's been great. And so every morning I would write for 90 minutes. I'd just get up, have a cup of tea, sit down, write for 90 minutes really early because then there's no phones, there's nobody bothering you. Yep, nice and quiet. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And by the end of August, well, it was August 25th. Funny enough, it was the day that the Paralympics were supposed to start. I wrote the last words. Oh, wow. Finished. Wow. And then I was about trying to find a publisher. And so he, he Andrew kind of guided me through that. And I, I sent it off to 16 different publishers all online. And you know what? Doing that was harder than writing the book because every publisher wanted something different. Yeah. One wanted the first 3,000 words. One wanted the first 1,000 words. One wanted the whole manuscript. One wanted a paragraph on every chapter. It was like rewriting the whole book. And there's 25 chapters in it. Oh, my gosh. And it was funny. I kept track of every single publisher and who I sent it to, when and what time, because Mm -hmm. they they all said on their websites, if you haven't heard from us in three months, we're not interested. Mm -hmm. Or you'll hear from us in six weeks to, to 12 weeks. So I kept track of everything and, and I sent it off to a local publisher here in Melbourne on the 6th of, I think it was October, 6th of October, exactly one, it was a Friday, exactly one week to the day on Friday, the 13th, which I've never really liked. Right. I received an email back from the owner of this Brolga publishing, uh, Mark Zacchi, And he said, I've read your book from front to back. He said, absolutely love it. Fits right in with our genre. We want to publish it. Oh, wow. I couldn't, I was like, wow, you know, this is amazing. So yeah, so I've, I've worked with the publisher and the editor and it's been quite an interesting process and then picking pictures. And so the title is The Force Within from Police Officer to Paralympian. I like that. That's a good title. Yeah, I, I just I thought it was, you know, the force being the job, but the lessons that I that I learned from the force, you know, and the people in my family. Yeah. And so it's chronological from talks about my grandfather. And so it is kind of biographical for me, but it's also my family and the lessons that I learned from them. And I think the toughest person to write about was my dad. My dad passed away five years ago now. And he was very strong in what he felt and believed in and writing some of the stuff there. I actually had a niece in, in Toronto who's edited each chapter as I went along for me. And at one point she says, Carol, and it was about the shooting, the shooting of a man in Toronto by officers. And unfortunately he was, he was black. He had schizophrenia and kind of fit into really what's happening now in the world. And I uh, said, Oh, Carol, you, you either got to take this out or it's just such a topic right now. But too explosive, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but it was it was something that was a turning point in my dad's career. Yeah. And so it was really important that it had to be there. Like he was he was the officer in charge of the the area that where this occurred, mm-hmm. and so it needed to be there but i had to reword it a bit differently so it stayed in and she was once i sent it to her she goes oh that's much better <laughs> okay yeah so, you just have so to soften it a little bit right <laughs> yeah so it's been a real journey i've found out a lot about my family that i didn't know 
that I didn't know. And, and I had all my mom's sisters send me stuff about them growing up in far northern Ontario in Canada wow. in, in a half French, half English town. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I learned a lot, learned an absolute lot about, about my family. And it's, it was such a, a journey. It was yeah. just amazing. So it will be coming out. The release date will be the beginning of August, mm-hmm. which is very exciting. We kind of worked it around the Paralympic Games because they start the 24th. So hopefully I can use that as some publicity for the book. Right. And yeah, I'm just so excited to just get it in my hands. You know? Yes, I bet. That's so exciting. I remember when I got my first book and it was just like, oh my God, like I've written this thing, you know. But now that I've got a publisher doing all the hard work, you know, doing all that and putting the money out to, to do that, because I spent a lot of money self-publishing. Oh, I know. Yeah. Um, yep. So it's just so exciting to think that somebody else thought enough of it. Mm-hmm. That Yeah. So they use Simon and Schuster to release it. Um, so that's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's a great publisher, Simon and Schuster. I mean, yeah. and, the they're, States, and they're worldwide. So well known. Yeah. 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 So, so it's, yeah, very exciting that that'll be coming out. Yeah. Well, in in Australia, New Zealand, uh, the beginning of August, it might be a bit later elsewhere. Okay. um, Yeah. You'll have to keep in touch and let me know. Maybe we'll do another podcast. Yeah. Perfect. The book is out and then we'll talk about the book. (laughs) Yeah. No, that would be great. That would be great. So yeah, there I've just spent, that's my life. You've had an exciting life. And I think when we chatted before, you said that you were never sorry that you were diagnosed with MS because it really has brought you all over the world and you've had so many exciting things happen. Oh, yeah. It was it was actually at a at a school talk after London. And it was a nine year old girl that stood up and she said to me, she she asked me, she said, if you could. And I couldn't believe she was nine because she was so turned out both her parents were doctors, but she was just so smart. And just the way she talked was much older than nine. And and she said, if you could go back in history and change the fact that you were diagnosed with MS, would you? And nobody had ever asked me that, you know, no adults had asked me that. Wow. And I had to stop and think, because it was like, wow, I've never thought about that. And I, I just kind of looked at her and I said, no, I wouldn't. She went, why? Like, why wouldn't you want to be healthy? I said, I'm not saying I don't want a cure. I said, but I would never change. I would never go back and change the fact because it's made me who I am, you know, given me opportunities that I never, ever would have had. I've met so many people and people who are so important in my life now over the last, what, 23 years mm-hmm. that how would I want to change that? You know, I wouldn't have them in my life. I wouldn't, right. I wouldn't have all the travel. I wouldn't be speaking to you. I wouldn't have my book. Yeah. There's just so many things. And I have, you know, I had, I've had people say, well, what do you think you'd be doing now? I have no idea. And I, I just don't, wouldn't want to think about it because how can you think about something you have no idea of what would have been, you know, it's yeah. And yes, I'd love a cure, but you know, and we're getting there one day. Yeah. You never know. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. funny enough, the fact that COVID hit and has, there's been a lot of work done in collaboration with uh, MS researchers and the researchers who are looking at, you know, the vaccination 
And there's been some real good correlation there. So, which is fantastic. You know? Yeah, that is great. Um, and when I, when I was diagnosed, there was one drug on the market to slow the progression. Now we have 14 or 15. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's lots of opportunity to, to, to stay healthy. Yes. You know, but I think like exercise I said, is key. Now you took yeah. it to a whole bigger thing, but you know, <laughs> I kind of do things overboard just a little bit, but I didn't, you know, what I do now exercise wise, I certainly didn't start out that way. And it was, it's been that slow step. It's like, I didn't take the escalator up. I took it one step at a time or I didn't take the elevator up. It was like, you know, that slow, well, I'm on this step. What's the next step? And just, just moving up. There was no looking at the top floor, you know, <laughs> right from the start. But, but you know, the mega swim wouldn't have been created. That was just supposed to be a one-off in 2001 because a lady at um, M the MS office here in Melbourne wanted to give out scholarships to people living with MS, $2,000 scholarships to follow a dream. And she'd been able to get funding for two years. And then the third year she had no funding. And I, so I started, I, I said, well, I just, uh, my swim club could do a 24 hour swim, you know, a relay. And we invited other teams. And that first year we raised $22,000 and I thought, great, she's got two years worth now. And that was until I was handing out some awards after the swim and somebody at the back of the room said, when is it next year? And I was like, what do you mean next year? No, 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 no. And we just had our 21st year in February. I actually retired from running the event mm -hmm. last year. It was the 20th anniversary. And I went, yeah, 20 years I've given and it's time to stop. But in Australia now we have 17 events around the country and it's actually wow. evolved it's actually evolved within ms to be called the the ms mega challenge so we now have 24-hour racquetball squash and racquetball 24-hour badminton and the 24-hour mega swim so it's just it's just evolved so it's been fantastic yeah that is fantastic wow see start little and you never know what can happen oh, that's amazing exactly. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And that's what I'm trying to tell my baby boomer audience. You know, maybe you've always worked and you just retired and now you don't know what to do. Find your passion, find something you like and go out there and do it. Oh, and I say that when I'm talking to corporates and, you know, I always say, as we get older, we get so scared about trying something new because we think people will be watching us and we think we're going to look stupid or we won't be very good at it or we'll be silly. Hey, if I worried about what I look like riding a tricycle, I never would have got to where I am. And seriously, I do think it looks ridiculous, but it keeps me going. So I always say to audiences, just try something new, you know, whether, and it doesn't have to be sport related. It could be anything. It could be try painting or drawing, try singing, you know, Join a choir. In a choir, if you don't feel you have a good voice, you can be hidden, you know, because everybody else will be singing. But if you enjoy doing it, just do it. Um, try a new food. Try going to a cooking class or anything that you've you've probably in the past been pretty passionate about but never had the time to do, yeah. especially when people are retiring and especially with lockdowns that happen. And I don't know if the U.S. have locked down as hard as Australia has, but you had to find things to do, you know, because we couldn't go anywhere. We literally couldn't go anywhere. So, yeah, and 
you know what? I always, I always worried about what people were thinking. People aren't even doing that yet because they're all wrapped up in their old own world. Exactly. You know? Yeah. We worry so much about how, what other people are going to think of us. And to be honest, they don't really care. And as hard as that is to think that people don't care, they just don't, they're doing their own thing. So just do what you enjoy. Right. Yeah. No matter how good or bad you are. Yeah. I've never worried about what people think. That doesn't bother me, but I know it does bother a lot of people. But like you said, nobody's looking, nobody's watching, nobody cares. Even when you're talking, they're thinking about what am I going to say next? What am I going to? So, you know, just do your thing, have fun, because that's important too. But, you know, stay active, involved, keep your brain going, and you'll live a longer, healthier life if you do that. Oh, exactly. Exactly. You know, I can't believe that I'll be 60 in a couple months. And Isn't I just that think amazing. Yeah. I feel, but I feel 25. And I think it's because most of the paracycling team who I deal with all the time, and I when we're when we're away or on a training camp, I get to room with the young ones. You know, like I am there's only one other person out of all the coaches and athletes and staff on the Australian paracycling team that's older than me. Just one. One. Hmm. She's our, our Swanee, as we call her. She does all our massage and nutrition and stuff like that. And she's like three years older than me. And everybody else is younger than me, even our head coaches. But I room with young women that are in their mid-20s. And I feel like them, you know, like because we're rooming together, there's no lack of conversation. I just kind of revert to 25-year-old <laughs> And that's fine. <laughs> and but it's funny. I just I just don't feel it and I don't think I ever will. You know? That's and, good. And yeah. if you mentally think you're younger, then you'll stay younger because it's yeah. a mental everything's a mental game. I'm sure you found that with your sports that you've got to win it in your head first before you can oh, win it with your body. So Definitely. You can't you can't go into a Paralympic game saying, "Oh, I hope I win." Yeah. No, right there, right there. It's a negative thought. And that's, that's the one thing about mindset. And, you know, I talk about that a bit in, in my first book and getting that proper mindset of what you want in life. You can't just hope for something. You actually have to go, well, I'm going to do this. Or, you know, I go in saying, well, I want to, I'm going to win my, my third time trial in a row at a Paralympic games. I mean, the time trial is all I really care about. So I'm going to win that. You know, you have to have that mentality, not I hope, because all of a sudden the negativeness comes in that there's a possibility you won't. And then that's all you think about is the negative side of it. So, yeah, you have to change your way of thinking and, and you know, how you look at life if you really want to enjoy it to its fullest. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. thank you so much for being my guest. Uh, you've been a wonderful guest. I'm so in awe of everything you've accomplished because you've done so much. You've, you've, you know, and you've had your ups and downs, which I think baby boomers have to understand. Nobody goes straight to the top. It's a real roller coaster, no matter what. It's up and down and up and down. You changed several sports. You had to keep changing. And the one thing that we know is always going to be around is change. So if you're flexible and you can change, you'll be a lot happier. Oh, definitely. It's scared to change because, you know, the biggest change, in, well, I've had a lot of change moving from countries, you know, 
but the biggest change was being diagnosed with a chronic illness. And you just kind of, yeah, at first it's like, what do you mean? Like, you know, that doctor said my life as I knew it was over. He was right, but he was thinking in a negative way. And I like to flip that to a positive way. And like I said before, because it's made me who I am. And don't be scared of change because even change that looks really shitty and bad at the start right. can become something brilliant and amazing afterwards and help you grow. Yep. Yep. So where can people find you, Carol, if they want to know where to get your book and learn a little bit more about you? Do you have a website? Yep. I do have a website. It's Carol Cook, cook with an E at the end of it, .com.au. I do write a blog every week. Usually every Sunday I post it. It's funny, this week's blog came a day light because I just had nothing Sunday. My brain wasn't working. So I wrote about that. I wrote about that Monday saying it's okay to say no, you know, even to it yourself. Is. Right. It's okay right. to take a day. And and so it was brilliant. That's so that my blog this week is about how it's okay to say no. Uh, yeah, even to yourself. Because I last on the Sunday night I was like, Oh my god, I haven't I haven't written anything. And then as I was riding on Monday morning, I thought, you know what, it doesn't matter. It's okay. <laughs> so um, yeah. So yeah, so I write a blog every week and yeah, hopefully every Sunday. <laughs> and um Actually, I'm on Facebook as well. You can just search Carol Cook on Facebook. And I'm on Twitter as Kaz Cook, C-A-Z-C-O-O-K-E. Okay. And um, on Instagram as Kaz Cook 61. Great, great. Good. Well, I'll have all of that in my show notes for those of you listening that don't have a paper and pencil handy. So just go to www.kickassboomers.com. And once um, Carol is live, you'll be able to click on her picture and all the show notes will come up. And her, this podcast will be available next Monday, which is, I forget, today's, this past Monday was the 12th. So whatever the next Monday is, it'll be. Well, it should be the 19th. 19. There you go. There you go. So, but thank you. This has been great. I've really enjoyed it. And I know my audience is really going to enjoy hearing from you too, knowing how much you've done, but all the ups and downs and trials, and we all have that. So it's really good to hear that you're just a normal person. You push a little harder, you win gold medals, but you've had a lot of hardships along the way. Yeah. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you, Terry. And thank you. Yeah. I think no matter what age we are, we can always push ourselves and we can always set new goals. You know, Absolutely. it doesn't matter. It's, that age, that number is just that. It's a number. So Absolutely. I totally agree. So thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Kick-Ass Boomers. For more information on today's guest, along with the show notes and other inspiring resources, buzz on over to kickassboomers.com. And don't forget to join our Kick-Ass community on Facebook or LinkedIn to continue the conversation. Be bold, not old.